bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. In the book Coyote America, uh, author Dan Flores talks kind of in the opening parts of the book about the different ways of pronouncing the word coyote. So it could be pronounced coyote, like if you think of it starting with the letter K, coyote, or coyote. And apparently the way you pronounce it reflects your attitudes or beliefs about this wild canine. So if you say coyote, um, that's more common hunters and trappers that have like a utilitarian view of the coyote, maybe views that the coyote is a vermin or a pest. Um, But anyways, it's a view that it's okay to to hunt and trap and uh, kill coyotes. So the other way of pronouncing it, coyote, um, is more derived off of Native American um, enunciation of, of that animal's name. So apparently if you say coyote, um, your attitude is not so much utilitarian towards the coyote or coyote. It's maybe a little bit more um, preservationist, uh, maybe uh, animal rights, sort of you don't want to see them hunted or trapped. Anyways, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, maybe think about how you uh, pronounce it when you say it, and see whether or not those kind of fit your your um, your beliefs and attitudes. Uh, I tend to say coyote. Um, I just find that it <clears throat> kind of rolls off the tongue a little quicker. Coyote. Uh, it's got like sort of like three syllables, takes a little longer to say it. Coyote is kind of like, you know, it quickly rolls off the tongue. Doesn't, you know, I don't hate them. Um, I am fine with hunting and trapping uh, of them. It's done in a humane, sustainable manner. Um, so I don't really uh, feel that my use of the word um, or pronouncing the word coyote uh, is is sort of der- is derogatory. But anyways, um, think about how you uh, pronounce pronounce it and see what your attitudes are and whether that lines up. I think of the the Looney Tunes cartoon uh, Wiley E Coyote uh, and the Road Runner. So and that when you say that you say coyote. Wiley coyote, not wily coyote. So <clears throat> it's kind of kind of interesting vernacular in the English language. Anyways, this is an episode about coyote bookends. So my opening story uh, is about coyotes. So last year I talked about uh, a controversy that kind of brewed up in the middle of the winter time in Ontario over a coyote killing contest uh, where a sports store in Ontario was sponsoring a coyote killing contest. Uh, That caught the ire of a bunch of uh, animal rights groups and the general public and sort of there was some controversy ensued after that. The Ministry of um, Natural Resources and Forestry in Ontario looked into that contest when it was brought to public light and they had determined that two of the paid categories 
um, for contestants bringing in coyotes actually constituted promoting a bounty, which is illegal under Ontario's uh, Fish Wildlife Conservation Act. So anyways, this story has um, reared its head again and three groups, Animal Justice, the Fur Bears and Coyote Watch Canada are suing the provincial Ontario government over the annual coyote hunting contest that's held near Belleville, uh, Ontario. They claim that the government, by allowing the contest to go ahead, is breaking its own laws. <clears throat> so according to Ontario's Wildlife and Conservation Act, uh, you cannot uh, do anything, um, you can't hunt for the expectation of gain or induce anyone else to hunt for gain or to pay or accept a bounty. Uh, so the these three groups are... <clears throat> um, saying that the coyote killing contests are breaking the law because they're creating the contest is creating an expectation for gain in hunting uh, it's inducing someone uh, to hunt for gain and it's the payment uh, or acceptance of money for killing an animal which they think is a bounty so i uh, have not heard if that has been heard by a judge accepted the case is accepted to go forward but if I do hear, and when I do hear more about this case, it's kind of interesting. I will uh, obviously include it in another episode. You know, it's just these these killing contests, these predator killing contests keep coming up every year, and they create a tremendous amount of controversy uh, between the hunting and the non-hunting community, and even within the hunting community itself, uh, hunter against hunter. <clears throat> in my way of looking at it, my read on the situation is, is the non-hunting public abhors these killing contests because they feel uh, that it's not upkeeping with uh, ethical hunting, not hunting for food, and it's promoting just killing for the sake of killing. Um, they feel hunters need to uh, overexploit or overkill or eradicate coyotes so they use these contests they pay um, rewards you know for doing it <clears throat> and they think coyotes have value in the ecosystems and they just have this perception that it's you know like a, a free-for-all contest that's using money to eradicate uh, these mesocarnivores off off the landscape there's some other concerns in ontario about overlaps with the algonquin wolf and stuff they're worried that they would be confused with a coyote uh, you know these sorts of things i mean the the contest itself doesn't <clears throat> create the hunting season the hunting season and trapping season is already there <clears throat> so whether or not there's a contest or not hunters can go out and hunt the coyotes but it's this idea of paying people, turning it into a contest, kill as many as you can. I think that really rubs the non-hunting public the wrong way. And for a lot of the same reasons, uh, it rubs hunters the wrong way. Um, doesn't mean that they don't support coyote hunting or predator hunting. Just this notion that paying to go out and kill as many as you can the biggest you can uh you know these these sorts of things 
my read on some hunters is that's just not ethical hunting. That doesn't define hunting. That's not hunting. And they just don't like the idea of these killing contests <clears throat> being labeled as, as hunting because uh, they say it's not. And when hunters object to these killing contests, other hunters that are very, very passionate about coyote hunting or predator hunting um, get upset about that, hearing that criticism within the hunting community. And my assessment of the situation is, is those passionate predator hunting folks seem to think that other hunters that object to the killing contests are objecting to the killing of predators, the hunting of predators, which in my experience is not the case. You can support predator hunting and be against a killing contest, but there are those out there that push those two together and think it's the same thing. If you object to a killing contest, by default, you're objecting to the hunting of predators and that creates conflict. So it's unfortunate um, that this continues to happen. This continues to put hunting under a negative spotlight, um, both within the hunting community and outside the hunting community. Uh, I think there's a lot of other ways to encourage people to be out hunting, taking up the opportunity of hunting coyotes, getting the fur, using the fur, making things um, out of it that's sustainable. Uh, maybe you might even take the fur and sell it to the fur auction, you know, which kind of helps uh, the trapping industry, having more furs go into, into the fur uh, auctions, that sort of thing. Like there's all, there's all good things. So if you want to put a contest around encouraging people to be out hunting, even if you believe coyote hunting is helping to mitigate uh, conflict with agriculture operators or pests uh, or uh, people's pets or conflict with people or just managing the population. Uh, I think there's a lot of other ways to endorse hunters getting out and partaking in coyote hunting without actually calling it a killing contest or for the prizes to be centered around the killing of the animals. Um, you know, it can be based on, you know, pictures, days in the field, uh, um, number of different animals seen while out coyote hunting. Um, you know, th these types, all these other things, values that hunters say <clears throat> are important to them and in the reasons why they hunt, um, turn the contest into those, you know, it's, it, it just takes the opportunity for the non-hunting and the animal rights people to turn these killing contests into, um, public campaigns, which now <clears throat> potentially might come in front of a judge and there might be a court decision on the legality of these hunting contests which is then going to reflect um, across all the provinces and territories and get governments to reflect on it. My concern always is, is the more controversy, there's already enough controversy over predator hunting to start out with and to continue to sort of uh, poke and prod and try to make a point that, you know, we're allowed to coyote hunt, we're allowed to wolf hunt, these contests are legal, uh, populations need to be managed, and you're getting the animal rights groups all fired up and into court over this. My concern is always that 
elected officials are just going to get tired of having to deal with this controversy every year. Politicians like to make controversies go away, and they like to make them go away by just getting rid of things. So it would be easy just to say, look, we're just closing down predator hunting in the province of Ontario because we're sick and tired of all of this stuff and our courts being tied up. And that's a loss of um, opportunity for hunters. But one of my biggest concerns is, is that could have a huge impact on trappers and the trapping community who are actually out there um, as a profession. Uh, indigenous and non-indigenous trappers, coyotes are a very, very important species in the fur market. And we keep testing the waters on this. I keep worry, keep worrying about the loss of hunting and trapping of predators because few people like to continue to make the point um, with these killing contests. So anyways, think about that. Let me know what your thoughts are. Coyote or coyote? Um, just recently, the British Columbia government <clears throat> announced uh, Bill 14, which is the Wildlife Amendment Act. So the Wildlife Act in British Columbia is being amended <clears throat> to bring in sections or introduce sections into the Wildlife Act <clears throat> where wildlife managers can consider Indigenous knowledge into the process of making hunting regulations and wildlife management laws, uh, wildlife protection laws, wildlife conservation laws. So um, it's bringing the Wildlife Act um, into alignment with the province of British Columbia's commitment to the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, so that's... Uh, a very progressive and new change. I think it's one of the first places I've seen in British Columbia where um, uh, legislation, provincial legislation, is being amended specifically to allow for Indigenous knowledge and values to be brought into the framework of the management of a public entity um, in a statutory framework. So right after that announcement <clears throat> that the government was amending uh, the Wildlife Act to bring in Indigenous knowledge provisions, right on the heels of that came another announcement in British Columbia and that the government was bringing in a last-minute hunting proposal to try to get across the line and into the hunting regulations for the next two years. The hunting regulation cycle um, is set for every two years in British Columbia. This is the year that they are finalizing and setting the hunting regulations for the next two years, 2022 and 2023. And so a last-minute hunting proposal came in by the province of British Columbia in the Peace Region Region 7B in northeastern BC, and the government was proposing and wanting the public to comment on the closure of all caribou hunting to resident and non-resident hunters uh, in Region 7B, and the move of the open season moose onto limited entry or permit hunting, and a reduction in the number of moose that were taken from about 1,200 to about 650 moose. So that was a huge controversy. 
because there's about four to five thousand ish resident hunters go to northeastern BC every year um, to hunt primarily moose. Uh, the number of moose that are taken are well, well below um, scientifically set, scientifically determined or proven sustainable limits of moose uh, between like 5 and 15% of the population um, can be sustainably harvested. Uh, the resident hunters, even though there was like 4,000 going up there and harvesting about 1,200 was substantially lower than about 4,000 moose that could be safely taken under sustainable um, moose harvest guidelines. Uh, that area of the province of British Columbia has some of the highest moose densities in all of the province. So why did the government propose this? Last year, um, a court decision in British Columbia came about called the Yehi decision. And it was where the Blueberry River First Nations took the province to court and said, all of your industrial activity in our traditional territory has impacted our treaty rights uh, for hunting. And the Supreme Court of British Columbia ruled in the Blueberry River First Nations favor and said, yes, the government of BC BC has done so much industrial development in the Blueberry River First Nations territory that it has impacted their treaty and constitutional rights to hunt. So the province started negotiations with a number of or with all of the nations in northeastern BC that are enveloped under the Treaty 8, uh, which is a Canadian treaty that covers um, First Nations groups from British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, and into the, into the Yukon, a uh, huge big uh, area, dozens and dozens of uh, First Nations, but this was just specific in BC. So in those discussions uh, what the hunting community in British Columbia felt was that the government was trading off future um, industrial development especially oil and gas and coal mining to continue happening at the scale that it is and in order to reconcile the impacts of that industrial development on hunting rights they were going to virtually eliminate uh, at least half of all the moose hunters that go up to that area uh, actually more i think uh, the bc wildlife federation said even though the number of moose would be reduced by half that would result because it's going on to limited entry hunting would result in about 70 to 80 percent fewer hunters going up there so fewer hunters are going to have to harvest fewer moose on permit so Man, that, that's been an ongoing controversy uh, here in British Columbia for about a month. Uh, there was a very short window uh, for the um, hunters to publicly comment on that. I think it closed on March 23rd, and now uh, that decision sits with the minister um, responsible for hunting regulations in British Columbia to make a decision on a really interesting aspect of this, I mean, if you want to know more, if you haven't been following it, um, uh, go over to the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Curtis and I did an interview with uh, Jesse Zeman, Executive Director of the BC Wildlife Federation. It's a short, punctual one, about an hour long, and he gives you the whole background on uh, why this came about, what it would mean to resident resident hunters, um, and a whole bunch of other um, podcasters in British Columbia did stories on it. Uh, there was four or five of them uh, at least. So th th that's where you'll get the details on it. But one of the things I found really interesting about this whole thing, and this is one of the first times I've seen 
hunters and hunting organizations in the United States take a proactive interest on a situation that was unfolding in British Columbia that was impacting hunting opportunity. And they got involved down in the States. They got involved first trying to figure out what this meant because First Nations rights and constitutional rights uh, is very different uh, in Canada than it is in the United States. So they were, they were learning about what that meant, trying to figure out why the government was making this, this um, proposal, what the Yehi decision was. And then there was groups like uh, howlforwildlife.org uh, getting involved and getting hunters from the United States to phone our elected officials in British Columbia and said, hey, no, we want to stand up for, for resident hunters in your province. And we don't think this is a good thing. Um, the Howl for Wildlife organization uh, developed a platform, uh, a call center, where uh, people from British Columbia could use this service and it would automatically connect them by phone to their MLA's office or it would automatically set up a custom email from your email in British Columbia to over 80 elected officials in British Columbia. And it was a massive campaign. I mean, it was pretty cool uh, to see that many hunters for the first time in my experience, kind of from outside of Canada saying, yeah, this doesn't directly affect us, but hey, this is hunting and uh, we all want to stick together globally. And they were raising attention on it and getting anybody who wanted to stand up for hunting to call our elected officials. At the end of the day, if an elected official in British Columbia hears from a resident of the United States and they're objecting to something that they're planning to do, they're going to discount that. They have no vested interest in in listening to or appeasing or accommodating um, people that aren't in their riding or from the province. But that's okay in my mind because what this interest and this advocacy and support from our friends in the United States has shown our elected officials here in British Columbia that if you do something to resident hunter opportunity that's not in the name of conservation, that's not in the name of science, that's not logically connected to accommodating or mitigating impacts um, to First Nations constitutional rights to hunt, uh, which hunters were saying that this proposal made no sense, you know, whatsoever from any of those aspects. That if, you, if you're making decisions like that and wildlife management and hunting in British Columbia, you're going to hear from a lot of people around the world at their displeasure of uh, sort of chiseling away at, at hunting. So thanks for everybody from the United States and Blood Origins and howlforwildlife.org for getting involved and, and, and being a voice up here. When the grizzly bear to hunt debate was going on in British Columbia, that was a pretty heated one. Uh, I was told that that public consultation on the proposal to close or amend the grizzly bear hunting season in British Columbia generated more individual submissions on a hunting season in the history of wildlife management in British Columbia. And there were over 60,000 individual submissions made to government about the grizzly bear hunt. Obviously, most of those 60,000 were asking the government to close hunting, which they ended up doing. 
But you know, I'm going to be really interested if I can get my hands on the numbers, how much this moose hunting opportunity reduction in northeastern BC generated total number of people, British Columbia, across Canada and the United States, how many people bombarded elected officials in the province of British Columbia. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me, I don't know, if it was up there or maybe above um, the submissions that were made on the grizzly bear hunt back in 2016. Uh, staying in British Columbia, last year I did a little video um, op-ed on the Hunter Conservationist YouTube channel and it was kind of raising, proactively raising a concern I had about some research that the Raincoast Conservation Foundation had announced that it was undertaking in British Columbia, coastal British Columbia, on mountain goats. So... If you don't kind of know the history of the Raincoast Conservation Foundation, they do a lot of coastal research, a lot of collaborative coastal ecosystem research with First Nations in the Great Bear Rainforest. But on the side, they also generate a number of papers every year, uh, scientific opinion papers that basically you know, don't paint hunting in a good light. Uh, very focused on the trophy hunting thing, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. I got some op-ed uh, videos on the Hunter Conservation's YouTube channel if you want to go figure out what the Raincoast Conservation Foundation uh, is about. But anyways, they had announced that they were going to undertake a mountain goat research project. And that was right at the start of COVID. Uh, and so their ability to get out in the field was kind of hampered and, you know, the everything that COVID did. But anyways, um, just uh, in March, they had published a paper that brought that research to conclusion. One of the things that I warned about when I heard about that they were going to be studying mountain goats is we better get prepared for the conclusion to come out that hunting mountain goats needs to stop. I just, it, it's one of the things that concerns me and a lot of people accuse the Raincoast Conservation Foundation of is this anti-trophy hunting or anti-hunting agenda. They definitely don't like foreign hunters coming into coastal British Columbia and hunting through guide operations. Uh, they're buying guide outfitting territory so they can stop uh, non-resident hunters from coming into the, into the province and trophy hunting. So I, I warned I warned about the implications of that research were probably going to be like pre predetermined. Uh, and that's what a lot of people accuse the Rain Coast Conservation Foundation doing of saying, oh, we're going to research whatever, and it's going to come out and say, yes, hunting should be should be stopped, whether it's the coastal wolves, grizzly bears, you know, black bears in and around, you know, the range of the uh, Komodi spirit bear, which they produced research on that a year ago that was moved forward into hunting regulation proposal this year to um, ban black bear hunting in a larger area on coastal British Columbia because some of the bears have the Kermode gene. So, so anyways, I, I raised that concern that we should be prepared for a narrative to come out that makes mountain goat hunting uh, look unsustainable, um, trophy hunting debate, that sort of thing. 
So anyways, they released this paper in the journal Conservation Science and Practice on March the 8th. And there were a number of sort of the group of scientists that um, participated in a number of these types of papers from the University of Victoria, University of BC, uh, I think the University of Toronto and the Raincoast Conservation Foundation. So they collaborated with First Nations in the Great Bear Rainforest um, and kind of comparing uh, empirical mountain goat counts, typical wildlife inventory counts, uh, hunting records, and indigenous knowledge on how often they used to see mountain goats in these areas. And they basically came to the conclusion that um, the numbers of animals do seem to have undergone a decline since the 1980s, uh, was one of the conclusions of the paper. Now, here's one of the things that kind of bothers me a little bit about this University of Victoria Raincoast Conservation Foundation, the way they present these papers uh, and relate it to hunting. So the lead author, uh, Tyler Jensen, uh, was interviewed for a CBC story published on March 9th. And in that article, um, it reads, uh, Jensen said, include, uh, so, so the causes for the decline, Jensen said, include global warming, hunting, and attacks by predators. Mountain goats reproduce slowly and are sensitive to any human disturbance, he said. So that's a quote in the CBC story on March the 9th. So he, he definitely is quoted as saying that one of the causes of the decline was hunting. In the actual scientific journal paper published March 8th in Conservation Science and Practice, the paper said this, ultimately, our analysis cannot provide a clear causal link between declines in sightings and hunting mortality. But we have identified steady changes in human-goat interactions that warrant additional monitoring. So they actually state in their own research paper they couldn't actually determine from hunting records that hunting was one of the causes of the decline. But in the interview, the lead author said one of the causes of decline was hunting. And it's not the first time I've seen this various cohort of scientists produce a paper and then it comes out and is interpreted differently by the media and it's not corrected. Like the authors involved in the research don't say, okay, hang on a second, media. This is not exactly what we found in our paper. Um, they tend to kind of just let the media, um, you know, spin these things and put it out there. As long as it makes hunting look bad, uh, I have not seen any one of the folks or anybody from Raincoast Conservation Foundation kind of step up or from UVic and sort of say like, well, actually, that's not what we were saying. So one of the things that the paper also said um, said the group being um, all the authors uh, and the indigenous collaborators on on the mountain goat research uh, the group is also urging provincial authorities in british columbia to take local knowledge into account and suspend provincially sanctioned non-resident hunting in territories like theirs where goat numbers appear low so they focused in on guide outfitters and the bringing in of non-resident hunters they didn't actually say they objected to it because it was trophy hunting. They presented information in the paper that showed that since the 1980s, resident hunters have had a tougher time harvesting goats. And it is well known 
that the longer it takes a hunter to take an animal, you know, when that data is reported, how many days did it take you to, you know, kill your whatever, uh, can be an indication of the health of the population of the animals that are being hunted. The fewer of them, the longer it takes a hunter to find one. It is a indicator of, you know, the, the amount of time and effort it takes a hunter to get something. In this particular subset of hunting data, hunters, non-resident hunters that had a guide were getting mountain goats quicker and more efficient than the resident hunters were. I think that's a fairly common thing. Um, guides are out there, start a hunting season to the end. They really know the ebb and flow you know, of the populations, they can find the animals. If it's hot, they know where they go. Like, I mean, they're really dialed in. It's their job um, to get their paid clients, these animals. They do have a level of knowledge of their populations. Uh, their game and their territory is kind of like trappers. That's maybe um, just a notch above the average person that just draws a goat tag and goes up, never been in the area before. So they're, the, the authors of this paper seem to be zeroing in on the fact that the outfitters were a little bit more efficient in getting their hunters goats. They could get them a little quicker with a little less effort. So they said, if the goat numbers appear to be low, then we should cut out um, guides and um, non-resident hunters because they're a little bit too efficient. So whether or not that's the intent is from a conservation perspective or if it has more to do with the fact that the Raincoast Conservation Foundation is actively trying to buy up all the guide outfitting territories in the Great Bear Rainforest so that they can stop non-resident hunters from coming into the province. Jumping over to Manitoba, um, new study is showing that grizzly bears are being spotted more often now in northern Manitoba, uh, especially along the coast of Hudson Bay. So in March, there was a, a new paper published um, in the publication, the scientific journal Arctic, uh, by a professor from the University of Saskatchewan, uh, Doug Clark. And he's been looking at um, these sightings uh, of grizzly bears in Manitoba and he's confirmed that over the past four decades in Manitoba found that the grizzly bears are being observed with an increasing frequency. So there's a really cool um, series of pictures out there from this study in northern Manitoba of a uh, game camera that was set up on a spot and over I don't know what the time frame was but this camera took pictures of all three species of bears that are in Manitoba. A polar bear walked by in front of that camera, a grizzly bear walked by in front of that camera, and a black bear walked by in front of that camera. Uh, pretty cool. One of the sightings recently in northern Manitoba was a mother grizzly with two cubs. Um, so the scientist, uh, Doug Clark, suggested um, it doesn't necessarily confirm that grizzly bears are breeding in Manitoba, um, but, or sorry, it, he that it does confirm grizzly bears are now breeding in Manitoba. Um, reading a bit more into the paper, it was super interesting. Uh, they know these grizzly bears are showing up uh, around the Hudson Bay area, but then at other times of the year, they don't know where they go. They, they have yet to study them enough to figure out what they're doing in northern Manitoba. In 2006, there was a, 
um, sort of a big news story in Canada and the Northwest Territories that a hunters shot what they thought was a blonde, real blondish white grizzly bear, and it turned out to be a pizzly, which was a hybrid of a grizzly bear and a polar bear. And since that grizzly bear um, hybrid, polar bear hybrid, was shot in 2006, uh, they've been finding more grizzly bear, polar bear hybrids uh, throughout the Arctic and up in uh, the Arctic region of Alaska as well. So what they figure is, is with climate change, grizzly bears are moving north and polar bears are coming inland more because they have less time on the ice packs because the ice packs aren't there as for as much of the year for them to be out hunting seals. They're coming into contact with each other and they are breeding. Grizzly bears and polar bears diverged from the same lineage about half a million years ago. So they are completely capable of breeding and producing viable offspring. I think there was a um, confirmed case in Alaska of a sow polar bear mated with a male grizzly bear if I remember and produced viable um, hybrid offsprings. Crazy. A new study from University of British Columbia Okanagan campus um, with a couple of lead scientists that we've had on the Hunter Conservationist podcast before, Dr. Adam Ford and Dr. Clayton Lamb along with a uh, master's student, uh, Carmen Richter. They were looking at the recovery effort that's being led by the West Moberly First Nations and Soto First Nations in Northeastern BC to recover the endangered, uh, and cover one of the herds of the endangered mountain caribou, the Klazanza herd in Northeastern British Columbia. And so the latest study that they just um, concluded shows that the indigenous-led conservation effort in northeastern BC that the Klazanza herd caribou numbers have nearly tripled in under a decade. So what they found in the study is that the caribou recovery can be broken into sort of what they call short-term and long-term actions. Short-term recovery actions are wolf reductions, moose density reductions, and caribou maternal penning. Getting pregnant female caribou um, into pens like domestic animals, they give birth, they rear the calves in a pen, they feed them lichen till they get to um, you know a good mobile stage and then they turn them loose to go back into uh, their natural range with the rest of the herds and, and boost their numbers that way. Then there's long-term recovery actions, which are to fix up all of the impacts that industry, uh, primarily logging and road building, have had on the landscape. So the short-term actions of predator control, wolf control, is the, is the hot topic no matter where you go in this country. People seem to be against it. Well, one of the things, again, that this study showed, of which other studies have shown in British Columbia, is that wolf management, wolf control around the area of the Klazanza caribou herd has had the greatest effect proportionally to that increase in caribou numbers that they've seen in less than a decade. 
the maternal penning program has also had a significant um, role in boosting their numbers, but they show that the predator control, wolf control is actually helping more um, than anything. Kind of makes sense if you're raising calves and punting them out at this time of the year out of a, um, a safe, secure, human-guarded pen that if there's too many wolves on the landscape, they're going to be eating those calves up and, and your population's not going to control. So it's like, that's why pulling both these conservation levers at the same time, um, scientists have said time after time, it's these multiple recovery actions, short-term and long-term, um, that are helping the caribou herds. There's been a tremendous amount of publicity in Canada over the last year, two years, about these uh, wolf control areas, wolf reduction programs in the caribou recovery zones. Uh, other scientists have tried to publish papers that um, reworked the data and showed that wolf management isn't causing the caribou population to increase, you know, and criticizing government for um, having or continuing wolf call programs. There was a public opinion poll put out, um, survey put out by the province of BC late last year that said, do you support uh, wolf control for caribou recovery? Because uh, it was looking to develop its management recovery plan for the next five years. 60% of the people in British Columbia that took the survey said they don't support continuing um, wolf control. The province announced that it's going to carry on with wolf control in the caribou recovery zones because I think they're getting some good scientific evidence that's showing that it's helping. Last year, I also talked about uh, this story in Manitoba where the Manitoba government amended its Wildlife Act to address the safety concerns around night hunting in, uh, in Manitoba. So First Nations uh, were allowed to hunt at night. Um, it was a traditional way of hunting. Um, their rights to hunt are protected by the Canadian Constitution. But there was also a lot of concerns about night hunting in and around agriculture areas and the populated areas uh, of southern Manitoba. So the government brought into uh, an amendment to its Wildlife Act, uh, actually it was in October of 2020, sorry, two years ago, that um, basically addressed this issue of night hunting to accommodate the First Nations constitutional rights to hunt and to hunt at night, they developed a permitting system for First Nations that basically said, you can still exercise your constitutional rights to hunt at night. We just need to issue a permit. Uh, that permit is not valid on private land. Uh, and if you hunt on Crown land at nighttime, it's incumbent upon the First Nations hunter to ensure that the lands are unoccupied and that if a gun is discharged, uh, it's not within three kilometers of a building roads or farm, uh, which kind of basically was like the northern half of Manitoba from what I gather. Because in the southern half, it's from what I gather, it's almost impossible to be three kilometers from a building road or a farm um, to be able to continue to hide it, hunt at night. Anyways, recently this spring, the... Um, uh, Pegwe First Nations in Manitoba launched a lawsuit against the provincial government alleging that these amendments to the Wildlife Act in 2020 uh, concerning night hunting infringed on its members' treaty right to hunt. 
So a representative for the Pegui First Nation said the night hunting provisions interfere with the Pegui members' ability to exercise their treaty right to hunt using their preferred method of hunting at night. So the article went on to say that First Nations' interest in hunting is for food and efficiency is incredibly important and hunting at night is one of the most efficient ways to get the job done and to get meat and bring it home. So this is a really interesting case. Um, no words from the court in Manitoba yet. I don't know if they've actually heard the case. Uh, it's just that the lawsuit has been launched by the nation against the provincial government. So uh, I'm going to be following this one this year in 2022, and I'll uh, let you know what I hear. Springtime in Ontario and wild turkeys. So southern Ontario is the only place in Canada where the North American wild turkey, the eastern subspecies, is native. They were native to southern Ontario. They were extirpated and then through a large hunter-led conservation effort um, involving the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, uh, years and years ago, turkeys were reintroduced back into their native range in southern Ontario, and they are proliferating. Like They have a really healthy turkey population in southern Ontario of the Easterns. Well, people have been reporting in the Britannia Conservation Area near Ottawa of going out, doing their walks in the conservation area of seeing turkeys and in some cases being confronted by wild turkeys in and around the Mud Lake area. So people are being weirded out by turkeys in the spring of the year uh, during the strut that are being confrontational towards people. So apparently the turkey, the wild turkeys there are used to people because it's a conservation area where there's no hunting. Uh, they are f people will feed them, kind of like the coyote situation in Stanley Park that I, stories that I covered. So they're not necessarily scared of the people, but so when the people come along and the toms are all ramped up for breeding season, they're being confronted by these wild turkeys and it's weird note people that are out for a Sunday walk. So a senior conservation officer with the National Capital Commission um, for the, the government of Ontario um, said that it's normal at this time of the year for wild turkeys to be aggressive because it's their breeding season. And that means turkeys, especially the males, may be behaving in ways that they wouldn't the rest of the year. But this officer from the National Capital Commission went on to say they can get extremely territorial, sometimes aggressive, which is not true. Wild turkeys have home ranges, but they do not have territories. Wild turkeys do not establish territories, and wild turkeys do not defend a territory. They live within a home range. Wild turkey behavior, social behavior, is based on a hierarchy, which is very common in birds that they develop the quote-unquote pecking order. And so throughout the year, uh, males and females establish who's the boss, 
and where everybody sits on the ladder rung below the boss bird. And that's how they operate. So they're okay with each other being males, being around other males, just as long as that hierarchy is being respected socially. The big toms don't chase off Jake's and subordinate toms from a territory. They just ensure that that pecking order of who's first, who's second, who's third remains intact and they don't actually protect a territory. So maybe not a big thing was to me because it was incorrect information about wild turkeys and I like correct information about wild turkeys. Staying in Ontario, um, Ontario government announced that it's introducing a new fall turkey hunting season uh, in seven of the southern wildlife management units in southern Ontario. So that's super cool for Ontario hunters because like I said, they have a booming wild turkey population. So they've been just seeing hunting opportunities like flourish. I, I do believe the last time I looked, you're allowed two turkeys in Ontario in the spring and two in the fall. And if I recall correctly, the one of the only provisions was is you couldn't take both birds on the same day, you know, or something like that. But you could allow, you could take four a year. So now they're opening up uh, seven more wildlife management units for the fall turkey hunt. Um, Lauren Tonelli, who is a uh, hunters resource management specialist with the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, said the opening of more fall season validates this conservation success story as it shows how well reintroductions of wild turkeys has worked in Ontario. So it's kind of neat to have these two stories back to back because over in the Britannia conservation area, you got this thing in the springtime with tom turkeys being aggressive towards people and there is a really robust turkey population in southern Ontario and potentially what seems to be staring me in the face is one of the ways to address turkey conflict in the conservation area is to allow some hunting of wild turkeys in the conservation area. So that would probably create some controversy for the dog walkers and you know those sorts of things uh, having some hunters in there but it would probably tune the turkeys up a little bit and probably take away from the uh, aggressive attitudes that some of the males have towards people. So I don't know, seems like a workable solution there. Reduce some turkey conflict in the conservation area, put a little bit more turkey meat in a few people's freezers in Ontario. So some uh, fishery stories that I've been following uh, late this spring uh, in Canada. So, kind of another unfortunate round of the Canadian current story of our fish populations are in the oceans so in our, in our commercial fisheries so the BC herring fishery closed on March 28th uh, and they only took 4,000 tons in the commercial fisheries which was about half of the quota the DFO set and that raised the alarm in British Columbia of herring fishermen as well as a number of conservation groups and these conservation groups have been calling for a moratorium on commercial herring fishery for several years now and this is just another example that they said that sites 
the reasons why there needs to be a moratorium on herring fishery is because you couldn't even come close to catching DFO's quota. That is a conservation concern, and they're calling for a moratorium. On the other side of the fence, the Fish, Food, and Allied Workers Union that represents commercial fishermen in Canada said there's no cause for alarm. They went on to say a spokesman for uh, the FFAW said you don't determine how many fish are there by how many fish are caught. That's interesting. It's true in the sense you've also got to look at how many fishermen, how, how hard did they fish, the number of days they spent, and how many fish did they catch. And you have to compare apples to apples. Because if you catch fewer fish, but there were fewer fishermen and they spent less time, that doesn't necessarily mean there's fewer fish. But when you look at what they call effort, if, if for a unit of effort, effort that a commercial fisherman puts out, how did their catch compare to previous years? And then you're comparing apples to apples. Then that can be an indicator of the herring population. But the article didn't really talk about that. Um, I think that's probably what the, uh, um, the union was getting at, is just the numbers of fish aren't indicative of the population itself. But they didn't go into talking about numbers of fishermen, days spent, that sort of thing, to actually really assess whether or not there is a, um, a substantial decrease in the herring stocks. Over in Newfoundland, Labrador, just recently here, the government announced, um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans announced a moratorium on the mackerel fisheries. Uh, so that affects actually both recreational fishers as well as the commercial fishing industry. And again, the Fish, Food and Allied Workers Union representing commercial fishing industry in Canada is calling on DFO to reverse that decision. Uh, the FFAW union has been calling for more mackerel research for quite a while now, and it says important changes observed in the distribution and spawning patterns are not being accounted for in DFO's current surveys. So they're advocating, again, there's not a decrease in the mackerel stocks, it's just DFO's not doing a good job counting them, and they're asking DFO to reverse the moratorium on the mackerel fisheries. So some of the local harvesters, uh, I've been reading in the papers of saying that they think DFO is significantly underestimating the number of mackerel that are out there. So kind of the, the boots on the ground, boat in the water type knowledge versus the scientists at DFO. Um, so very common to see that discrepancy in hunting as well difference between what people on the ground are reporting what they see out there versus what scientific research is saying so this is what the commercial fishermen are saying is it's not as bad as what dfo sa says it is sticking with kind of the fishery stories um the northern cod so this year marks the 30th anniversary of the moratorium that was placed on the cod fishery in the atlantic provinces of canada which led to one of the most devastating 
social economic collapses of the economy and way of life in the Atlantic provinces of Canada when the, when the great northern cod stock fisheries was stopped because its stocks were almost depleted. Just recently, DFO announced that it is unable to complete research on the northern cod stocks because its fishing boats are old and broken down. That's also going to affect the ability of DFO to do research on capelin stocks as well. Again, the Fish, Food and Allied Workers Union that represents commercial fishers said harvesters could be an asset in filling in the gaps of data on the health of the northern cod stocks. So that's a good point in my opinion. Here's a situation where the government and their scientific vessels aren't seaworthy and they can't go out and do the science to determine the quotas and the sustainability of the catch and and um you know obviously if they have to if they miss a year um doing stock assessments they might have to be more conservative and cut back on the commercial fishing industry so the union is saying like hey we got commercial fishermen out on the ocean with perfectly good boats why not get together with us and get those fishermen to help you fill in data gaps on the cod stocks. Interesting idea. Kind of like citizen science. So now, sticking with commercial fishing, seals, seal populations. So again, the Fish, Food, and Allied Workers Union in Canada has launched a national campaign that's trying to bring to attention what it feels is the overpopulation in the Atlantic Canada of seals and the devastating effect that those seals are having on fish stocks that the commercial fishing industry relies on. So the FFWA uh, union said it's calling on the federal government to immediately undertake adequate scientific work to understand the true impact seals are having off of our coasts and to ensure appropriate action is taken to repair the ecosystem imbalance. So they go on to say that an adult gray seal can consume up to two tons of fish a year. And there's an estimated 400,000 gray seals off the Atlantic coast of Canada. So that amounts to 800,000 tons of fish consumed each year by the gray seal. Harp seals are estimated at 7.6 million in Atlantic Canada. And the last assessment, which was done way back in 2008, estimated that their consumption, harp seals are consuming 4.2 million tons of fish each year. The union goes on to say that between 1992 and 2022, the entire commercial fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador harvested less Atlantic cod than seals are estimated to consume each year. A spokesman for the union said, we know the effect this population explosion of seals is having on the marine ecosystem. It's time for the federal government to stop covering up an environmental catastrophe while touting a conservation-driven agenda. The union representative also went on to say, it will take political courage to compel the federal government to stop pandering to self-serving, misguided groups that are preventing solutions. 
in an ongoing trend of greenwashing and dismissing the concerns of fish harvesters, we must let scientific truth, not misguided hysteria, dictate the correct course of action. So, seals are like the marine equivalent of wolves. <laughs> so, it's like they're out there, they're a natural part of the ecosystem, and they eat things that humans want their populations grow and they eat more and people that want a piece of that pie and not to have a diminishing piece of that pie being the commercial harvesters or in the case of wolves hunters want something done about this predatory competition so what are your thoughts wolves of the sea do they need to be controlled there is a commercial seal industry in Canada. And later on this spring, we'll have a podcast all about seals, seal hunting, and the seal products industry in Canada. And we're going to dig into this topic a little bit more, see if we can flesh out whether or not increasing seal harvesting in Canada would be a good thing for conservation and economics. So lots of stories unfolded this winter uh, about COVID in white-tailed deer. So there was a study late last year um, of U.S. scientists that found 80% of white-tailed deer sampled uh, in Iowa, uh, across Iowa, uh, tested positive for the COVID virus. And they found the first evidence that the Omicron virus was also infecting deer white-tailed deer in the United States. Uh, white-tailed deer were discovered in Ontario uh, late last fall from hunter samples that confirmed that white-tailed deer in southern Ontario had contracted uh, COVID and obviously didn't kill them, um, but it passed through. They could tell because they had the uh, antibodies for the COVID uh, virus in the deer's, the deer's blood. But they also discovered in white-tailed deer in Ontario that a genetically similar version of the virus was identical in a person from the same region of Ontario who had recently been in contact with a deer. So using genetics uh, on the viruses, they found this genetic strain of the virus in white-tailed deer, and then they also confirmed that same virus of somebody and when they say close contact with the deer, I assume maybe they're talking about a hunter that handled the deer. I don't know, unless people are out in Ontario like to go out and mingle and hug and kiss deer. I don't know. I assume it was a hunter and they ended up contracting. Sounds like they ended up contracting COVID from the deer. So I don't think this is the quite the concern of CWD making the leap into humans um, and then getting in because that would be fatal for humans. Um, but it is a concern for public health because of the COVID virus potentially just circulating between people and white-tailed deer and back into people and round and round the deer become a reservoir to continually allow it to pop back into um, into humans and affect a proportion of the human population. Obviously, they're trying to get rid of it, 
vaccinate people, all this kind of stuff. And if we've got this link between people and deer and deer and people, now it just uh, runs the potential of this thing sort of being an endemic um, infection, an endemic virus uh, that's going to perpetuate itself. Some of the, the papers I've read, it's like it's 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 not a big health concern for hunters if you harvest the deer with COVID. They say you should wear a mask and rubber gloves because you can you can contract it, you know, like that way at the time you come up to your dead deer, but not from eating the meat because the COVID virus is killed very easily by heat. So one of the things about CWD in deer where they're saying don't eat it till you've got your test back is because cooking the meat won't kill the CWD. And so then there's the risk that it's somehow it's going to evolve when it's being ingested by people and find a way into humans as a host. The Ontario government is coming out of a incredibly bad winter for its deer in its several of, of its management areas, uh, Dryden, Kenora, uh, Sioux Narrows areas in the province's northwest region. So they were implementing a late winter in March um, winter feeding program. So the government said the snow depth reading in some of those areas near Kenora, Ontario are the highest on record. Um, said during the harsh winters when deer are in danger of starving, emergency feeding is one option wildlife managers can use. The emergency deer feeding program uh, was expected to last about four to six weeks. So that would probably still be going on maybe a couple of weeks and wrapping up. Um, but it would be kind of contingent on weather conditions and probably natural green up and whether the deer can make the transition from um, winter to green, green, greener pastures and how long they have to keep feeding them. So this is pretty interesting because, uh, you know, the artificial feeding of ungulates in North America is quite controversial, uh, especially when it comes to CWD transmission, uh, feeding congregates, animals, saliva, urine, feces, all that kind of stuff is how the CWD uh, is transferred from one animal to another. Feeding them brings them together, increases the risk of transmission from infected deer to healthy deer. Here they got the whole thing in Ontario going on with the with the COVID uh, getting into the white-tailed deer. I, they may be separate areas, north and south. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I was kind of a little surprised um, with kind of the science around CWD and COVID that the Ontario government did take an emergency winter feeding program, especially for white-tailed deer. Um, they rebound so quickly after uh, a bad winter, um, you know, a year or two of good weather conditions and twinning and usually white-tailed deer bounce right back from a bad winter. But anyways, that's a wildlife management tool that's used in Ontario and they are pulling that tool out of the tool bag this spring. What are your thoughts? Should we be feeding deer in areas where we might spread COVID or CWD in the populations? All right, bookends, coyote bookends. So here's the other bookend from the lead story. So there's an editorial writer on Vancouver Island that writes for the newspaper, the Victoria Times Colonist. Her name is Laurie McFarlane. 
and she recently published an article talking about the urban deer problem in the greater Victoria area and the impact that they are having on gardens and, um, and you know, vegetable gardens and flower gardens and, you know, and all that, all that kind of stuff, all the problems that urban deer create. And she proposed a solution. And she also talked about the problem with geese. So in the lower mainland in British Columbia, there's a lot of Canada geese and lots of controversy around increasing Canada goose populations and they poop everywhere and and people don't like that. In Stanley Park last year, they were undertaking um, an egg addling effort in Stanley Park where they go shake the eggs to kill the uh, um, uh, the embryos inside them and put them back. And then the parents don't bring the eggs to um, to hatch because they're, they're dead as a way to control the population. So anyways, deer and geese are like a big area uh, on the lower mainland and the island in British Columbia. So this is what the editorial writer for the Victoria Times colonist said. So instead of perfect, perfectly, instead of perfectly futile efforts to get rid of greater Victoria of thousands of deer by neutering, because they're doing that sterilization project uh, in and around the greater Victoria area, and addling goose eggs, she proposed that they import foxes and coyotes from mainland Vancouver over to Vancouver Island. So coyotes are not currently on and are not considered native to Vancouver Island. They're not there. So her solution to this deer and Canada goose problem is to introduce carnivores, mesocarnivores, foxes and coyotes onto the island, which they're not native, because American research shows that a pack of three to four coyotes can eat up to 120 pounds of venison a month. Since the average black-tailed deer, the sort found munching on our veggies, weighs less than 100 pounds, much of which is inedible hide and bones, a dozen or two coyotes could put a serious dent in the deer population. She goes on to say, at a rough calculation, 30 or so foxes could conceivably rid our fields of, say, six geese a day or a couple of thousand per year. That would definitely be a start. I don't know what you think about that idea. So one of the dynamics that's happening on Vancouver Island is there's an increasing number of black-tailed deer that are living in and around people's homes. The urban deer are increasing. They're becoming more of a problem. But in the backcountry on the island, they're actually de decreasing. So Vancouver, black-tailed deer on the coast rely heavily on old-growth forests. Vancouver Island is being extensively logged of its old-growth forests. They're seeing a dramatic increase in the wolf population on Vancouver Island. And a consequence of those three things, logging, old growth, wolves, and cougars, Vancouver Island has the highest density of cougars in all of the world that has cougars. They are, they're all the way down in South America. Highest density of cougars is on Vancouver Island. 
hunters have actually having a tough time finding black-tailed deer. I think over the last 30 or 40 years, the harvest of black-tailed deer in Vancouver Island has gone something like 14,000 deer a year to less than 4,000 because of dwindling deer populations in the backcountry. But they're having a booming deer population in the urban areas because they got a booming cougar population and a booming wolf population and they're running out of old growth habitat. So are their old growth habitat is being quite extensively logged where some people figure that's the driver in the decline of black-tailed deer on most of Vancouver Island. So <clears throat> this is an interesting solution to say it's an urban problem. We've got too many deer, so let's get rid of them and introduce a, a non-native species onto the island to eat them all up. So I don't know. What do you think? Think we should move all those troublesome coyotes from Vancouver Stanley Park uh, over to the island so they can eat uh, six geese a day. I don't know about that. <clears throat> I think if three or four coyotes are eating 120 pounds of meat a month, it's probably in mice and ground squirrels more than deer. So I'm going to chalk this coyote bookend up into the, this idea of introducing coyotes onto Vancouver Island. Um, I'm going to nominate it for a Darwin Award, that idea. So tell me what you think. Would you vote for that as a Darwin Award? All right, everybody. Now you know what's going on around Canada. And we'll see you in the next episode.